one of the things he taught me was asking staff to help you solve a problem that you're dealing with that they are fit to help you solve. Let's staff know that you value them in a way that being perfect does not. My name is Jake Thompson, your Chief Encouragement Officer, and this is the Compete Everyday Podcast, a show designed to encourage and equip you with the tools to build a winning mindset so you can build your winning life. Text PODCAST to 972-945-9113 to join our Morning Motivation Club and visit CompeteEveryday.com for past podcast episodes and to learn more about our resources and gear for ambitious people who are ready to start winning. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show, Competitor Nation. Today we're joined by Dr. Sean Pastuch of Active Life and his mission to help people live a life well lived with empowered thought, physical freedom, and emotional well being. Today, Dr. Sean and I talk about leadership. We talk about not being perfect and the willingness to open up and ask your team and people for help. And we get into the importance of recognizing your thoughts and learning to change those thoughts to help yourself continue to grow and get better. To learn more about Sean and his team, all you got to do is head to activelifeprofessional.com or click the link in our bio to connect with him directly on Instagram, where, as he mentions, all the other links head from there. So now, let's get into today's show. I'm glad you're here, and I'm glad you get to meet Dr. Sean Pastuch. John, welcome to the Compete Everyday Podcast. Jake, man, thanks for having me on. Yeah, excited for today's conversation. I feel like as I've gotten to know you a little bit, uh, after we got connected and, and seeing some of your work online, we're, we're very similar mindsets in a lot of areas. But uh, for those just getting used to you and, and who you might be, give us a quick snapshot of Active Life. Uh, what inspired you to start? And then we're going to go in a million different directions. So <clears throat> the quick snapshot of Active Life is... We believe that people deserve a life well-lived. And what we define as well-lived is that you have empowered thought, you have physical freedom, and you have emotional well-being. What we find is that too often people are trying to prioritize one of those at the cost of the other two, or two at the cost of the one. And I know enough about you, Jake, to know that you and I are similar enough to say that if one of those things was out of alignment for us in our lives, it'd be the one thing that we were focused on. And I believe that a lot of people are like that. Instead of looking at the two things that are great and then figuring out, okay, well, how did I get to these two things? At least I'll speak for myself. I won't speak for you on this one. I would be thinking, this one's a problem. How do I solve for it? And it would be a hyper-focus. Yep. In the past, I would get stuck in, this is a problem. This is a problem without solutions. Yep. And so it becomes the, what are the solutions? What are the questions that somebody needs to ask you so that you can come up with your own solutions to the problems that are holding you back from living your most fulfilled life? That's what active life exists to do. Now we've done that for enough people from around the world that their coaches and the gym owners who employ those coaches have seen the results we've gotten for the clients. And they've asked, 
would you educate our coaches on how to do this? Would you educate us on how to build a business that allows coaches like this to work here? And so we went from serving only the individual to serving the individual, educating, developing the coach, and creating business processes for the gyms so that they can educate this kind of a professional inside of their facility. Yeah, one of the things you said there that I think kind of your core pillar that I'm always intrigued by that I also think is one of society's hardest problems now is the empowered thoughts. Mm -hmm. And I see that when I hear you say that, I think of really the ability of an agency and taking ownership of your life, your choices, your current situation, as well as your ability to change it. When you talk about empowered thoughts, where do you specifically sit with that idea or the message that y'all are trying to teach with that? Empowered thought means that you have control over what you're thinking about. And so, so thoughts jump into our mind. What do we do about it? How do we feel about that thought? Do we have to take action on that thought? No. Do we want to take action on that thought? Well, maybe. Let's observe it. Let's make some decisions around it. Is it the best version of that thought? Is it the language that I need to be pursuing in order to take the best action towards that thought? Or do I need to reframe the thought in new language that allows me more agency to do what I actually want to get from it? And a really good example of this that we see come up in people's lives, especially in the professional development side, is when they come with something that is like, hey, what do you think of this idea? This idea might be something like, what do you think of charging a travel fee to go see my clients? Great question. Um, when you ask me a question like that, it limits the scope of answer that I can provide because you're asking me about a tactic to solve a problem that we haven't mutually agreed yet is a problem. Yep. And we haven't observed all of the different ways in which that problem might be starting and therefore all of the ways in which that problem might be solved. <clears throat> so instead of answering that question for you, I have a question in return. What is the problem that you're trying to solve by adding a travel charge to go see clients in their homes? And that teaches them to think differently about their problem. Well, I just, I just want to cover my cost. Sure. I mean, that, yeah. Versus how do I actually just build that into the value of the service we provide? Package as well. I, yeah. I just, I just had this, the reason why that's the example that came up is I just talked to a successful trainer in Manhattan. The guy, by all measures, the guy is successful. He's charging 150 to $200 per session based on how far he needs to travel. And I told him, and I, I said, like, what are the problems? He's like, well, when people travel on vacation, I don't, I don't have as many sessions during the week. Uh, so my August is basically I'm unemployed for the month of August. When you're working with high net worth people in Manhattan, you're unemployed for the month yep. of August. And I said, well, the problem then isn't that you need to change your pricing based on how far you need to travel. It's that you need to have a baseline of what they're going to be spending with you on a monthly basis so that you can have predictable income. And yep. you need to be able to provide them value when they're not with you so that when they go on vacation, there's no reason why they would expect to not continue to pay for that value. And so in this case, I think it makes sense to build a flat service charge that everybody pays as a monthly retainer to have the opportunity to work with you. And whether they train with you once a week or three times a week, that retainer fee is going to be the same. Call it $250, $300, $400, $500 a month, whatever you believe is appropriate. If they're paying that much money, they're, they're going to want to get as much as they can for it. And so they're more likely to train with you more than once a week, which means that you have the ability to have a more stable schedule. And when they travel on vacation, you're still getting that, that service fee. 
that allows you to hold them accountable while they're away for things that they've expressed they fall off the wagon doing when they go away. Yep. Now you need to build a service that affords the $500 validation that they would all say, yeah, that's a no-brainer. Because it's all about the value of the solution you provide, solving the problem pain point they have. Of course. And if you're, if you're working with clients who are looking to change the way that they look, feel, perform, their confidence, whatever, the way they think, all these things, those thoughts don't go away when they're on vacation. And sometimes they're going to need to check in with you and you say, hey, you're in Hawaii, man. Eat the ice cream. Like that's, that's okay. It's your eat, kid's birthday. Eat the cake. A hundred percent, right? And there's value to that. They gave me the chills when you said it's your kid's birthday. Eat the cake. Because... Now you're, now you're having positive social influence on somebody else's life because you made a decision to, to trust and love yourself regardless of taking one action that in a, in a micro evaluation is out of alignment with your values, but when placed into the macro is directly in line with them. Yeah. That's well, and it's, it's interesting when you said that as well, because I, I was thinking of a couple of different things of like how our thoughts, for instance, the negative thoughts we have and the the immediate place we go to of the dark hole. And to your point, like we control which thoughts we listen to, we respond to. Uh, we don't always have that that first initial reaction. So the person that's going on vacation, the mental toll of I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't like I can't eat certain things, I can't do certain things while I'm there with that specific coach. It's that coach's job is to help them take control of those thoughts or tactics to do that. But there's a lot of people that you've probably worked with that I've seen that just believe like, I'm always going to have this negative thought. I'm always going to be a negative Nancy. I'm always going to be a negative Ned. And I'm curious from your standpoint, how y'all have been able to shift and empower them with the power they have with their thoughts to at least start recognizing them. Mm -hmm. uh, because I think to, to the degree, like until we're aware of it, we can't change it. And the first step yeah. is being aware of it. And most of us, I think, a lot of society, we're just too busy to become aware of it, or so we tell ourselves. So be before I answer this, the credit for this answer belongs to two people, not me. The first one is a gentleman named Mark England. I don't know if you're familiar with Mark England or not, but he created a course called Procabulary, now called Enlifted, okay. which is, which is a, a core language upgrade. The idea is like change your language to change your thoughts, to change your actions, to change your life. And he did a great job with it. <clears throat> Cody Ringle, who is our operations lead at the flagship for Active Life here in Long Beach, has gone through all of Mark's education down to being able to coach other people to do this, to co like coaching people to, to coach people to do it. <clears throat> they use, um, back about maybe five years ago, I, I purchased Mark's flagship program for everybody on our staff because I believe language is, is crucial. So the way that we would do this is through what we call story work. Story work is when you take the thing that is most consuming for you, write it out in a detailed essay, take as much time as you need, get into a place of clarity, and just write every little detail about the thing that is most consuming in your life down. When you're done writing it, you read it out loud at 70% speed. After you've read it out loud at 70% speed, you read it again at 70% speed, taking a parasympathetic breath. So a deep 
at every comma, period. After you've done that, you write down you what, what's called you what if the good stuff. So what happens is we look at these, these situations in our lives that are consuming, and a lot of it is anxiety, which is really punishing ourselves for things that have not yet occurred and may never occur in our future. But we're experiencing the pain of it having already happened right now, unreasonably so, because it, it hasn't happened and it's unlikely to happen. Yeah. It's just that we're afraid it might. So now you start what ifing the good stuff. Like, what if this happens instead? What if when I do that, this is the response? And you start to overwhelm the negative thoughts with the positive thoughts of the what if. Because most, how- of our, most of our default on what if is always negative. What if I fail? What if this doesn't work? What if, yeah. We're, we're wired to focus on the things that might kill us. And, you know, in modern times, killing us is, is a figurative language for make life difficult. Yep. Um, you know, in, in old times, they, they'd be like, what, 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 what do you mean? I don't understand how that's a problem. Yeah. But so that, that's how we get people to start observing their thoughts as an answer to your question. The, another thing that I like to, to kind of couple that with is every time that, me, we, that we meet with a client, we spend the first five to 10 minutes focusing on wins that they've had since our last meeting. The reason for that being, it's easy to focus on all of the negative things that are happening in our lives. I'm struggling with this. My wife is mad at me. My kids are a pain in the ass. Whatever the thing that's driving you to feel negative, it's easy to spot it because we're trying to avoid that. So we fail to see the things that are good in our lives, that are wins, that are positive. If we can reshift our focus on the things that are good, and you know you have a meeting coming up with an active life mentor, you better be ready to share something good that happened this week, regardless of how bad things are going. You start to become more acutely aware of the good things. You start to look for the good things. And it becomes easier when you're doing that to navigate through the difficult times. Yeah, I mean, it almost sounds and really from a standpoint of ongoing the the habit of just like starting the day with like journaling and the gratitude practice and recognizing those wins. I, I have a coaching client and we we talked about something recently because they've been struggling to get into the habit of just every day acknowledging something, gratitude, right, writing it down. They kind of feel overwhelmed by the pressure of like, what do I need to write? And we talked about a recent experience they had with family and how looking back how they handled this specific situation, like they were incredibly grateful for time they got with them and they were able to talk about it and reflect on it versus six months to a year ago. They're like, I would have probably dismissed it. Like I wasn't even aware of those certain thoughts to whereas now they're having to actively think about it because they're having to actively every day acknowledge it. And to your point, like coming into a meeting with that sets a very good tone for that dynamic as well. In addition to don't just show up to this meeting to be here and expect to be spoon fed. I need you to come ready and prepared to get better. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the ways that we make sure people are going to get better, and I advise this to anybody facing situations when they're frustrated that somebody in their life who's important to them will not make the change that everybody around them knows needs to be made, is instead of telling people what to do, we ask them questions until they've come to the conclusion about what they should do. Because what I, what I find, sometimes people need a nudge, like, yeah, yep. go ahead, do that. But I, what I find is that if, if I said to you or your audience, 
sit back and listen. I'm going to tell you what to do to build a million dollar business this year. You're like, all right, maybe, maybe, but this guy doesn't know anything about me. He doesn't know what problems I have. Doesn't know how many kids I have at home. My relationship with my wife doesn't, doesn't know any of those things. So some of the things he said might work and many of the things he says might not. So I'm kind of interested. But if I said, it would it be okay with you if I shared a story about the year that I was able to take our company to a million dollars for the first time and share with you some of the things that I did really well and some of the things that I failed at that I think would be good opportunities for you to at least know. People are like, yeah, I'm down for your story. They're into it because now they get to pick and choose what of that is relevant to them. It's not being shoved down their throat. The other side of it is everything about it is truthful. They, there's nothing, there's no ability to doubt that it would work for you because I'm not telling you it will work for you. I'm telling you this is what happened for me. And so now what's left is for you to decide, will this work for you? That's a question that you're asking of yourself. The answer is, is truthful no matter what you say because you're the one who said it. There's another there's another piece to that as well that I, I want listeners to be aware of. It's, it's probably relevant for the, our leaders listening and to the coaches and, and groups you've worked with as well. Telling your story, here's what I did well, here's what I'd do differently, it didn't work, opens up that vulnerability of being imperfect. Because mm -hmm. usually if you're just telling, people are creating this own narrative story in their head that you have it all together, you're perfect, you didn't mess up. And then it was easy. And we all know on our own story, it's not easy, it's messy, it's sloppy, like we're going to fall down. And so when you open yourself up to allow them to pull things from it, at the same time, you're creating that connection point of like, here's where I wasn't perfect. Like, I wish I'd done this differently in this area. Hopefully you pull some of that and use that so you can avoid that mistake, but you create an opportunity to connect better versus just to talk at. Jake, may I ask you a question? Yeah. What are your thoughts on, because before I get to the question, I'll give you the context. One of the things that I consider all the time, and it really depends on who I'm in the room with, is sharing something that I'm struggling with and being imperfect in right now. Because what oftentimes I hear from people who are giving the talks from the stage or the podcast or whatever it is, is these are all the mistakes that I made when I was like you. And now I'm amazing. I'm amazing. I'm man. Right. And what's interesting to me is whenever I'm in the audience, I try to go to these events. I try to speak at these events, both of these things. I listen to podcasts. I guest on podcasts. I host podcasts. The people I'm most drawn to are the people who are sharing the things that they're still struggling with right now. Because that lets, in my opinion, the audience in on feeling like I can be helpful to the person who is being helpful to me. That would be my greatest pleasure. And that opens the door to a social engagement that you and I, when we're talking on a stage, want. I want, I don't go to events so that I can speak and then get on a plane and leave. I go because I want to meet people. I want to talk to people. I want to help people. I want to inspire people. I want to learn from people. And I'm curious your thoughts on how far to go with the thing I'm struggling with right now is. 
Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So uh, there's a couple of pieces to that. The first is when I was doing training years ago on Spearside, my coach was very adamant of make sure if you talk about a situation on stage, you've at least already processed it. Because what you don't want to have happen is somebody recounting, reliving, going through a trauma or an experience while they're trying to give a talk because they're gone. Like you get in your own head, you become super, super emotional. You've just pretty much disconnected with the audience if they're not there with you. And so I think from a, a, a speech standpoint, you've got to have already have gone through it, even if you just got through it. Like you've got to already have processed, made peace, moved on. The offstage conversations, I think there is that the revelation of being imperfect. And, and here, here's a good example. So two years, it's 2023, end of March or mid-March. The end of 2021, I started telling a story for the very first time on stage that made me super vulnerable and super uncomfortable about essentially I was too scared to chase a dream and I walked away from it and then lied about it, covered it up, uh, was too embarrassed of my decision. And I, I got to a point where I was like, I need to tell this story because of what it sparked in my journey afterwards and where it's brought me today. Once I started doing that, it opened up the offline conversations, the after event conversations of people who are like, I went through that same thing. I made that same decision. How, how have you worked past? So like it creates a whole different connection point at that point. But to your point in conversations like this, I want to talk about if it's not something, here's a good example. I am on the freaking struggle bus with book two right now. And I've got book one. I was like, I laughed to everybody. I sat down opening day of baseball season 2019 and said, this will be done by World Series. And every day I wrote like 500 words. Every single day. Some days I wrote three, 4,000. Some days it was 500 getting by. Cranked through it. People checked on me, all of that. But what happened was when I finished it, I didn't like it. And when I had to cut 35,000 words and start over to make it into what it ended up being, I told everybody it was like doing a nasty four-round workout which at the time I you know, was talking CrossFit. I'm like, it's like doing thrusters and running as hard as you can, burpees. And you finish the fourth round, you yell time. And the coach walks over and says, hey, there's actually five rounds. And you have to crawl back out to that 400 meter run and that feeling of like, like you're done, like when you shut it off. And I said, that's what it like. And so this next piece, this next book, like building the consistency again has been a beating. Like I'll get a rhythm and then it'll be gone for like a week. And I'll like, I have no idea where to go. Which is funny because I talk about discipline and habits and building that mindset and choices. And so like I will openly try to talk about some of those shortcomings in the midst of it because I want to open the door that like you never get to a point where you're perfectly polished, everything's set. On the flip side, I'm not going to talk about probably challenges that it might involve other people. So like when my wife and I were struggling early in our marriage and we're seeing a counselor, like I'm not going to, I can talk about it now and I can make recommendations to friends and because we've gone through it. But when we're in the midst of it and it involves another person at a deeply intimate level, I'm probably not going to open up to that. But I will if it's me and it's something I talk about because I can also talk about here's how I'm trying to work through it. Here's what I'm doing to create a little bit of accountability. Here's what's worked. Here's where I got off track. Um, because I used to believe I had to be 15, 20, 40 steps ahead of somebody to help them. And really, you just need to be one or two. Mm -hmm. Well, the reason why I asked you that question is I know that your audience is 
full of leaders, people who are responsible for the development and the security and the inspiration of others. And I find that oftentimes when I'm working with people in that position, there's this false sense of I need to be perfect and I need to never ask my staff to help me with something. And what I learned from uh, Aaron Hind, I don't know if you're familiar with Aaron Hind. Yeah, Fit Aid. Yeah. So one of the things that he taught me, he taught me many things, he's a very smart guy. One of the things he taught me was asking staff to help you solve a problem that you're dealing with that they are fit to help you solve. Let staff know that you value them in a way that being perfect does not. And so you don't need to make things up for staff to help you with. You have problems that you don't know how to solve. Some of them include the staff. You can ask them, hey, I'm really struggling with how to deliver this message to you guys. And if it's okay, I'd like to come up and just share with you where my thoughts are in a safe environment where you can understand the reason I'm sharing with you is I want to give it to you 100%. Here are my thoughts. Please help me sort through them. And I took that advice once, once recently. And I shared with our team, you know, I'm, I'm responsible for our marketing at Active Life. And I shared with our team, you guys have ideas for marketing. And I'm always struggling with, should I ask you to come forward and share your ideas? Or... Should I allow you to come forward and share your ideas when you see fit? The reason why I'm struggling with this is I want to make sure that those of you who want to share ideas know that you are safe to share them. And it'll be appreciated that you did so, whether we use them or not. And those of you who do not want to share ideas because you don't have them, I want to give you the safety of knowing that I don't expect you to fabricate ideas for the sake of fabricating ideas because I asked everybody to share ideas. And so I don't know what the right language is that I should use with you all to make sure that everybody knows I would like you to contribute when you feel like you have something valuable to contribute. And I would like you to feel great about the value that you add by saying nothing when you have nothing valuable to say. And the feedback was tremendous. What I also find interesting about that which by the way, I, I love how you set that up for them and gave them that space. But depending on what your staff did prior to working with you is they were program specific ways. We know a lot corporate culture programs, a lot of people of like, oh, we value your opinion, but don't really give it. Mm-hmm. Or, hey, I'm asking and I need everybody to bring something top notch that you're having to almost reprogram the relationship some of them have with their leader or the people they work with because of how they've been trained differently. And I think leaders need to understand that as well, to your point of the way you position that help to reprogram that dynamic. Because all of us, especially those of us working and having teams, our people have learned how to work with others from the people they worked with before. It's like you learn to date your current significant other probably what you did and didn't like dating previous ones. Like those relationships impacted how you showed up or how you saw your parents or any of those number of factors. And so we have to be aware of that in all of those dynamics too, 
And when we ask certain things, when we make those requests. So I love how you position that because it created a better space, but also that training opportunity. Well, one of the um, formative things that a mentor of mine named Ken Andruco taught me is that my role as the CEO of the company, my primary role is to create a safe and inspiring environment in which our staff and our clients can pursue a mutually shared goal. And if I've created a safe and inspiring environment, I can now just trust that everybody who I've hired for the purpose of, I believe they have efficacy in the job that they do. And I'm inspired to have them on our team. We'll just go ahead and do a great job. And that will grow the company. And so when I learned that from him, it made me start to think about, well, what, what does it mean to create a safe and inspiring work environment? Right? Uh, you know, it's, do I make a rah-rah speech every day? No. Um, do we start to, uh, you know, use language that is flowery? No. Do we, do we avoid- do ping pong and pizza every Friday? <laughs> right. You know, like, do we avoid being critical of people? No. And, and what I came to understand was that the best way for me to create a safe environment, let's start with safe, was for me to be predictable. And that means, you know, I'm telling you what I think. And you know, I'm telling you what I think in the way that I believe you are going to hear it best. And you know, if you didn't hear it the way that you wanted to hear it, I want to hear from you that I need to tell you in a different way. That's safe. Doing a bad job is not ignored because we're a safe environment. Doing a bad job is coached because we're in a safe environment instead of criticized. If that makes sense. No, it a hundred percent. I mean, I think about it from a sports perspective, like a coach that cares about their players is going to correct the form. They're going to correct the technique. They're going to correct it to make it better. And when the player continually messes up, they're going to figure out a way to correct that recoach different way to describe it something because they're doing it for the best of the individual, which helps the best of the team and overlooking poor behavior, uh, not only destroys that person's ability to succeed long-term, but hurt, hurts the culture mm -hmm. because a lot of us have been in those spaces and we know one, the worst behavior of your culture is actually your culture. It's not your best performers. It's the worst standard, but two, those high achievers, those people that love to do well, that are helping the organization, that are great contributors, eventually will get fed up with seeing the people that consistently mess up always get by with it because it'll mean, well, if we're not holding each other to standards, why, what am I even doing here? And their either effort energy drops or they just leave altogether because they don't want to be associated with that. Well, so what you're saying there, I, I've said in, my, in a different way, it's that winners want to play with winners. 100%. Right. You know, A players are not looking for a B player on the team. And are, are you, you're a sports fan. So have you ever heard yep. the story of when uh, Julian Edelman was getting pestered with, it's not fun in New England? No, I haven't. Okay. So this is one of my favorite sports stories. Maybe because Julian Edelman's an undersized Jewish guy who made it in the league and I'm an undersized Jewish guy trying to make <laughs> it in my own life. But um, there was this guy, Channing Marsh, who now I think plays for the Steelers, but irrelevant. He left New England. And when he left New England, he wrote a post that was, or a blog or whatever it was, that was like, there's no fun in New England. And he outlined all of the things about playing in New England that were not fun. 
right? Like shorter lunch times, expectations were everything was like business, 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 business. And there was a lot of chatter around the Patriots. And this is when they were, you know, winning Super Bowls. And I think, and it started to permeate the locker room. Like guys were like, uh, yeah, maybe like, it's not fun. Maybe it should be more fun around here. And it started to become something that was negatively affecting culture for the team, which by the way, I think is the coach's job to set the values of the team and to say, we want people who shared these values and we believe these values are winning values. 100%. So Julian Edelman got really tired of the questions about New England being fun. And for those of you who don't know, Julian Edelman is a probable future Hall of Fame wide receiver who's under six feet tall. Um, he walked up to the whiteboard, grabbed the marker, and just wrote in big letters on the whiteboard, winning is fun. And he put the marker down and he walked out of the room. And the reason why that was such a resonant story for me is growing up and having jobs in places, I longed for a culture like what I imagine the New England Patriots locker room was when they were winning championships, where doing something poorly was coached. You did this poorly once. We're going to coach you until you do it well. And if you do it poorly, after we know you're capable of doing it well, we know that you just don't care enough to do it well. I longed for that. And so trying to create that at Active Life has been a really hard thing to do and the most valuable pursuit. And it all comes down to, you know, what we started this conversation with around being imperfect and letting people in on that. Yeah. The, the, it's not fun sometimes to wake up at five 30 in the winter and run stadium sprints. Mm -hmm. Sometimes sure heck, <laughs> it's, it's fun to win games though. Yeah. And, and there's something, something to that. And to your point, I saw Dion Sanders, uh, incredible promoter of programs, but they showed a video the other day, he walked into the weight room and a kid had on white socks and he's like, leave mm -hmm. black socks. This is what we wear. Cause he's setting like, that's in your control. That was not a physical mistake you made on the field. Like we'll let those by, but mental mistakes, we don't let pass. And so I, I just, I love that. And I love uh, the idea of that story because great companies, great cultures, they have conflict. There are disagreements but they handle it in a great way. I mean, Patrick Lencioni's book, Five Dysfunctions of a Team, if your team can't handle conflict healthy, like you're screwed because then everybody yeah. goes in silos. And so knowing that, not wanting everything to be perfect and peachy and easy, but taking it on because we know what we're trying to achieve and we know those cultures, there are something special about that and something special comes out of that. Not only the people, but the outcomes is something to strive for. John, this has been a really interesting conversation. Honestly, did not expect it to go this way, but have absolutely enjoyed it and loved it. For people listening that I know you do a newsletter, you write actually your marketing copy is phenomenal. Uh, I sent to my team and was like on your email newsletter and some of your website, I was like, this guy has some really great writing uh, look at. But where can people, one, get connected with you for those that are listening that are that individual that could be a good fit or are a coach that are interested in learning more? Um, where can they go to find out more about you and your team? The easiest place to find everything is to come to my Instagram account and then find everything from there. So I used to do podcasts like this and give them seven different places. If you're looking at it, so now what happens is if you come to at Dr. Sean Pestuch on Instagram or just my name anywhere, 
Um, all of my other stuff is linked in my accounts. And I love how the first thing on your Instagram, like highlights is not work, but mm -hmm. dadding, mm -hmm. which I think imagines uh, what you find is your priorities before the work. Well, uh, to speak to that, my, my first priority is my relationship with myself. My second priority is my relationship with my wife. My third priority is my relationship with my kids. And then comes work. And the, 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 reason, like the reason for anyone who's wondering is I can't be the best husband unless I'm the best me. And I can't be the best parent unless I'm doing it in a team with my wife. And so we, we comes before all of us and, and then everything else falls into place. Incredibly valuable advice and direction you're setting. Sean, this has been great, man. Thanks for coming on the podcast this week. My pleasure, Jake. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Compete Everyday Podcast. To get in touch with the team, drop us an email to podcast at competeeveryday.com. And to find out more about our resources, content, and gear that will help you build that winning mindset so you better compete for your best life, visit competeeveryday.com.